The earth is the Lord's, the Midas trap and how to avoid it. This is part three. I'm going to look at three texts of scripture. The question I want to address is this. Is it good or bad when I can give to my church and still afford everything I want? Is it good or bad when I can give to my church and still afford everything I want? Text number one is 1 Chronicles 21, 18 to 27. You know this story. 1 Chronicles 21, 18. Hope you have your Bible in some form or another. Don't take my word for things. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad... ...to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord... ...on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord... ...so some kind of a prophetic utterance from Gad. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel... And his four sons who were with him hid themselves. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it it scared the the sons. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor, paid homage to David, David's king, with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price. ...that the plague may be averted from the people. We're going to talk about that. Then Ornan said to David, well, take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings... ...and the threshing sledges for the wood... ...and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. King David said to Ornan, no... But I will buy them for full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. Notice that. Nor will offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So I'm not taking it from... If it's yours, that's no good. I'm not going to take it from you. It has to come from me. But it can't be something that costs me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built there an altar to the Lord and presented bird offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. And then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. Put his sword back. ...into his sheath. These are not the little... uh, ...useless angels... ...that we used to have on our Christmas tree. These little chubby babies with wings on their backs. This is a big honking angel... ...with a sword and a sheath. So we're picking up the end of a... ...fascinating story in our our text. The, The background is important. Here's the background... David sinned by numbering the fighting men of Israel and Judah. 
and in an account that's sort of like the story of Gideon, remember? And God kept reducing Gideon's army, and the whole point of it was so Gideon would know that the battle was the Lord's and not his. You can turn my mic down, please. It's too loud. And so it's the same kind of idea where David needed to be purged from his self-reliance. He had a huge army. It seems that David should have trusted in the unchanging source of his strength, the Lord of hosts. David refuses the advice of his godly counselors not to take the census and so displays a lack of trust in the Lord. He's a wealthy, powerful man. He can do whatever he wants. And he puts his own interests first. No acts of immorality are committed. No idols are erected. No words of blasphemy are spoken. David goes out and he numbers... He numbers the people. He's at the peak of his game... in ambition... and wealth... and influence. He has massive military resources... and he knows it... and he does what he wants... because he has the power and the means to do it. Now the parallel account... of this event... in... 2 Samuel 24, we're going to look at that if you want to get ready. It reveals that after taking his census, to his credit, David's heart was broken and repentant. And here's the important part. David's heart was broken and repentant before God confronted him with the punishment of his actions. That's repentance. It's not the consequences of his sin that troubled David. He hasn't heard the consequences yet. It's it's the broken relationship with God that he can't stand. He can't live with that. And that's the only authentic starting place, spiritual starting place in dealing with sin... This is, how it, this is how it unfolds in, in 2 Samuel 24. You can look at 10 to 13. And it starts out, David's heart, David's heart struck him. Isn't that interesting? David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I've, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord... Please take away the iniquity of your servant. I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. We've heard of him from the Chronicles text. David's seer saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them. ...that I may do it to you. Now, stay with me. Jump back to our... First Chronicles text, just for a minute. If you pick up First Chronicles 21, 13... ...David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. 
Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he chooses something that God would do directly. Not being chased by his enemies for three months. He had all these options. He says, no, um, I'd rather, God, you deal with me directly. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. We're not told how long it took. Not quite, but almost the population of Newmarket. Everybody in Newmarket died. Was it overnight? Within a week? 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and relented from calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now you start to see, oh, that's where David wants the altar, right? This is where God stops the angel. The angel is about to destroy Jerusalem. God says, enough. Stay your hand. David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword. It's not put back yet. Pending, right? David lifted his eyes, saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces, and David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, the people, what have they done? Please, let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your, be on your people. moving story. It's interesting the way David chooses divine punishment over human. Maybe perhaps he knows how human judgment can overstep the bounds of justice through revenge and bitterness and pride. But 70,000 men die and the text hints that more was about to come. That 15th verse, that's quite a verse of scripture. God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. He was about to destroy it. The Lord saw, relented from the calamity, said to the angel who was working destruction, it's enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. The whole story kind of reeks, doesn't it, with Old Testament divine wrath. And we, we kind of all feel the the heat and the weight of those haunting words. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and how easy it is to forget that that is not an Old Testament quote. It's a New Testament quote. It's Hebrews 10.31. 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. New Testament. Even this really quick overview, it helps bring our morning text into clearer focus. Context matters. David gets into this mess. David gets into his sin by putting himself first because he's powerful enough, wealthy enough, prominent enough to do it. And so now, now it starts to fit together. It starts to make sense. We're in a better position to understand his present passion as he wants this land from Ornan the Jebusite. You understand why David says, I can't just take this for nothing. I cannot. I dare not come to this fresh altar of forgiveness and restoration doing the same kind of stuff that got me into this mess in the first place. There simply must be sacrifice. There simply must be cost. Only sacrifice can provide the adequate counterweight for this selfish imbalance in the human heart. An apology isn't enough. Selfishness has to be turned back. Self-reliance has to be exposed. It has to be confronted. There has to be a counterweight to selfishness. And this new altar he is about to purchase is the place for this surgical transaction in David's heart. Now, you and I aren't kings and queens of a theocratic kingdom. And we aren't building altars upon which we butcher animals so blood can be shed for pardoning sins. That once-for-all sacrifice for sin, that's been divinely provided in the physical death of God the Son on the cross. So, it might look like there's just little application to be found in this ancient account of David... And the purchasing of land for the construction of an altar. What does it have to do with us? Well, we shouldn't go too quickly. True enough, we need to offer no sacrifices for the atoning of our sins. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't butcher lambs in the sanctuary. We celebrate another death. But we still face some of King David's same disease in our own hearts. I mean, David's position and David's resources make it possible for him to take care of all of his needs. He can do what he wants to do. No one's telling David he has to sacrifice for the price of this land. No one can stop David from counting up his 1.1 million soldiers. Must have felt good. My army. So he has much 
of both wealth and power. He relishes counting off his army at his disposal, all of them there to protect David's empire. And, and all of this, all of this makes it hard for him to escape the kind of independence and the kind of greed that accompanies these kinds of calculations. And he knows now, as he sits talking with Ornan at the threshing floor, he knows he needs something in his worship to train him in denying himself in the rest of life. He doesn't need to sacrifice to buy forgiveness. He needs to sacrifice to keep him safe from future corruption. They're two different things. Ornan thinks he's doing David a great service. You see that in that 23rd verse. Ornan said to David, take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood, wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. That won't help David one bit. This would be more of the same selfish mindset that got David into this mess in the first place. David doesn't need to be easily taking more in. He needs to be untangling his soul by getting more out. Ornan doesn't see it. So David, David is reinforcing the necessity of sacrifice. Not sacrifice for pardon, sacrifice for protection. And David is learning again the importance of guarding his own heart from the deadly weight, the deadly weight of abundance. Text number two, Malachi. We are not looking at the will a man rob God text. Malachi 1, verse 8, and then verse 14. Malachi 1. Verse 8 and then verse 14. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? This is an interesting point here. Present that, and the that is, is, is the lame, it's the sick, it's the blind, okay? When you present that to your governor, the officials, the governing officials, will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? That's a rhetorical question. The answer expected is what? No. No, he won't. He won't that won't work. That won't work. 14. 
Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet, sacrifice, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Why would someone do this, by the way? If I have a flock, what's worth more to me? A healthy lamb or a blemished one? The healthy one, right? This is, the healthy one is money in my pocket. So, so if I can, I can give this, I can offer this to the Lord and kind of fulfill my obligation, but it doesn't sacrifice as much as offering the other. Okay, so we all get it. That's, that's, that's the idea. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king. We're meant to see this, right? Your governor? You wouldn't do that to him. I am a great what? But you'd do that to me. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. And for those who think I made a mistake, I've deliberately left out the classic you have robbed God passage. There is a tighter link with David's uncostly sacrifice issue in these two verses from the prophet Malachi. God's people have not always been as quick to spot the wickedness of giving sacrifices to God in less than sacrificial ways. Is it good or bad when I can give to my church and still have everything I want? My point is, it's horribly bad. It's horribly bad if you can give to your church and still afford everything you want. These two texts show why. The giving is still there. The people are bringing the lambs, the sheep. As with David's altar purchase, it's, it's the sacrifice that becomes the issue. These verses are God's words to people who were alert to the issue of, of bringing their offering, but not honoring the principle of sacrifice. There's bringing an offering and there's bringing a sacrificial offering. They did the first. They were avoiding the latter. They, they knew what was required. God wanted the finest male from the flock and that's what they were pretending to be giving, but what they were actually offering was blind and lame and blemish. They couldn't sell it for quite as much anyway. Please notice... I pointed out that searching question in verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is it not evil? And then this part. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So, these people, they were, they were more mindful of their appearance and acceptance with other visible people that affected their actions more than an invisible God. 
We're all a bit like that. The people were more real in affecting their actions than God was real in affecting their actions. And, and it was what they did with their material goods that revealed that fact. There would be consequences. Of course, there would be consequences if they were supposed to give something to their governor and they didn't. Well, there'd be consequences to that, right? You don't, you don't pay your income tax. Well, you do because you, you know that's a real person. Those are real people. And they'll come after you for your taxes. And so you pay your taxes. What's God do? Well, nothing. Do you see what's going on here? Would you do that to your governor? No, they wouldn't do it to the governor. They'd do everything required for the governor. But not with God. So who's affecting their lives most? The governor. But I'm a, I'm a great king. They didn't think there were actual consequences from an invisible God. Their invisible God carried no material weight. So how much does that matter? And, and why does God need the best of the flock anyway? Seriously. What's, what's God do with meat? Does, does, he, does he make food for himself? Is God a meat eater? What possible difference can it make to God? Any of our giving, for that matter. Read the New Testament. He doesn't need anything from any of us, it says. What's he going to do with it? Why is he so adamant about this costly offering when God is a spirit and doesn't eat meat anyway? Well, in one sense, there's two answers to that question. In one sense, those sacrifices had to be perfect because they pictured the perfect one, right? That's why they couldn't be blemished. Jesus died unblemished on the cross, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If he didn't die unblemished, then he dies for his own sins, not mine. It's very important that we have an unblemished Redeemer who died on the cross. So that's one answer. But there's something else. Because... Just as David, and now these people, my heart needs not only cleansing, it needs protecting. It needs readjusting. Self-sufficiency and materialism are deadly to spiritual life and wholeness, and so God prescribes worship patterns 
like a doctor prescribes medicine. Don't bring anything uncostly. Not for my sake, for yours. Every day, you and I have the chance for easy giving to the Lord. We get receipts, in fact. Ornan actually supplies some of the wood. I've heard it so many times. Well, either give it to the church or give it to the government. You know, they're going to get it one way or another. We can see to it that all of our needs and desires are put first, leaving what we feel is affordable. You can do it that way. Remember the widow? Go make your meal. First, though, first do this, he says. She secures her life long term in what she does first. We can all set up standards of living for ourselves that are high enough that they virtually ensure that there won't be enough money to cover even our needs, let alone something truly sacrificial for Christ's church. And, and all of the above situations, they evade or ignore the real issue. At what point will I learn that God is actually asking that I put myself second and him first? At what point will I grasp that I'm actually being asked to scale down what I spend on myself so that I can have more for the ongoing work of the Lord? That's the, when will I learn that? I'm talking to me. Now, finally, what I want to do, just, so there's David in Chronicles. And there's the prophet Malachi with the people. Does this carry over into the New Testament? Text number three. Mark chapter 12, 41 to 44. Mark 12, 41 to 44. And he, that's Jesus, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. I don't know if you like this or hate this. He watched the people putting in their offerings. We're going to take up an offering at the close of the service. Would your offering be different, seriously, if visibly, physically, with scars in his hands, if Jesus was sitting right beside you when the offering plate came by? Would you be looking for something in your wallet? So he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples. No, they weren't there. He sees this, what this widow does. The order's important. Then he goes, wait, wait, you guys. Psst, come here. I want to show you something. Quick, hurry over here. Calls them over. Said to them, truly, that's the old way of saying, I'm not kidding. I say to you, this poor widow has put in more, and that can't be right, than all those 
who are contributing to the offering box. But they all contributed, and this is the phrase, out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. It's like the widow at Zarephath last Sunday morning, right? Or the Sunday before. Yeah, last Sunday morning. The 41st verse, it seems impolite to modern givers. Watch the ushers. Even when you give, they kind of stare off at the ceiling so they're not staring at what you put into the plate. And Jesus, it says, he's, he's looking for a spot where he can see exactly what everyone's putting in. He looks for that place. That's what it says. So much for Jesus not caring about money. Now, by any human accounting, the rich had put in far more than this widow. That's why we need Jesus' perspective. Because he tells us how, he tells us how God assesses our gifts. That's what this is a passage. That's what this passage is all about. How does God measure offerings? My offering. How does God measure my offering? Let's just talk about me. I don't usually put it in because I'm, but Rini will. How does God measure my offering in this church? Well, I know there's different ways of doing it. Here's how the government measurement measures it. Uh, they, I get a receipt, right? I get a receipt and there's a thing for charitable deductions you fill out and that's how the government measures my giving. And this text says that's not how God that is absolutely useless in terms of how God measures it. It's, it's good. It's good to be diligent and proper and send that in. If there's, a, if there's a tax receipt and you get that back and you give that to the church. You get to give twice. So that's fine, but this text says that's not how God does it. This poor widow put in, put in more... Right there. Not my word. It's Jesus' word. This poor widow put in more because her giving was sacrificial. So now we're back to where David, right? I can't, I can't, I can't take your offering of the threshing floor and the land and the altar and the oxen because I got into this mess just being self-consumed, and I can't get out of it being more self-consumed. My sacrifice has to be here. I don't need just forgiveness. I need readjusting, a radical readjusting. Malachi and the people. You're giving. It's not that you're giving nothing. You're bringing the offering, but it's not costing you enough. Your giving is leaving you better off and God shortchanged. Same principle. You're going to be in trouble because there's nothing about your, the sacrifices you're bringing, there's nothing in them that's reorienting your heart. There's no counterweight to selfishness in what you're giving. You're giving, but it's not doing for your heart what it ought to do. And now, this widow. And I want you to see exactly the same thing. This widow... Jesus, as he watches the offering go by, says, she put in the most. 
By what reckoning? Well, hers is the most sacrificial. How does God measure our offering? Say the word. You're scared to say it. Say it again. Louder. That's how he does it. That's how he does it. Old Testament, New Testament, every testament for all time. Is it a good thing or a bad thing when I can give to the church and still have everything I need for myself? Pardon? It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Whether we're ready for it or not, this text in Mark 12 is the clincher. God dishes up a truth that stuns me. I said just talking about me. How does God measure my giving? And here's what I have to digest this morning. God measures my giving not by what I put in the plate, but by what I keep for myself. God measures my giving not by what I put in the plate, but by what I keep for myself. Why did this widow give more than everyone else? She didn't keep anything back. It's true for kings, it's true for prophets. It's true for widows, it's true for pastors, it's true for business persons, it's true for seniors, it's true for retired people, it's true for missionaries, it's true for everybody. It's true for everybody. God measures our gifts not by what we put in the plate. He measures our gifts by what we keep for ourselves. How did this widow give more than everyone else? She didn't keep anything for herself. Now, I need to make a statement in order not to be misunderstood, because I know you're going to be leaving soon, and I don't want you mad at me. I don't mean, I don't mean we can't spend our money on nice things. Did everybody hear me say that? I don't mean we can't spend our money on nice things. And yes, I suppose we, we all have, there's a spiritual gift that everyone in the church has, we have the spiritual gift of setting material standards for other people. I get that. We all have nice things. Some people have more nice things and they're not less spiritual because they have more nice things. Provided, provided, we all recognize it's impossible to skate around this solid biblical principle that we endanger our own souls when we don't have to alter our personal consumption when we give to the Lord. So here's what I'm saying. Old Testament, New Testament. The sacrifice must be proportionate to my rate of self-spending. My 
my sacrifice must be proportionate to my rate of self-spending. In other words, my giving to the Lord must be proportionate to my giving to myself. You can't pray a greedy heart away. God's appointed means of counterweighting our fallen, selfish, materialistic hearts, God's appointed means of counterweighting that is sacrificial, lifestyle-altering giving. It's the same message, I guess, eh, as that widow in last Sunday's teaching. It's not wrong for her to prepare her final meal for herself and her son. Elijah tells her that. Elijah said, go do that. But first, Elijah says, you, you make that for me. And it was the Lord's idea. The text is clear. God told the widow and God told Elijah. She must not think that her own needs were her first priority. And she and she couldn't just and she couldn't just verbally say, you know what, I I really I really do I really do put God first. I love him with all my heart, but I'm not going to make that cake for you. I'm going to do this. I mean it had to be acted out. It's, it's, like, it's like telling the government, you know, I really, I agree with the principle of taxation. I understand that it's the law, and I want you to know I'm behind you guys 100%. I'm not paying my taxes. But in principle, I'm with you. And so Elijah says to this widow, you go, do that. But you, you have to do this first. And she had to do it. God's way of protecting fallen hearts. Let's pray.